We are continuing our series in the meantime, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. If you have your Bible, 2nd Thessalonians chapter 1 today. We'll do that whole chapter, all 12 verses. And to get you caught up to speed a little bit, uh, just to, by way of reminder, over the last, I think, seven or eight weeks, we've studied 1st Thessalonians. And that was one of the first letters that the Apostle Paul, uh, the servant of God, the messenger of God, whose name was Paul, wrote that book of the Bible. 1 Thessalonians, and it was one of the first letters he wrote to a church that he had started just a little while before he wrote them the letter. And it's probably one of the most encouraging letters in the entire New Testament. He wrote to encourage this group of Christians who were suffering persecution and affliction for the cause of Christ. And one of the most important things that he did was he was helping them to understand how that they were to live faithfully for the Lord right now in light of the Lord's return. They had some ideas and some thoughts about what the return of the Lord was going to look like and when it was going to happen. They had some doubts and some questions about whether or not uh, they were going to understand and see the return of the Lord. And so he wrote 1 Thessalonians to correct that false understanding and to help them have the true understanding, but to help them to know how to live in the meantime. As we move into 2 Thessalonians, the reason that I decided to put these two letters together and preach on them together is because the main theme is really the same through both of the letters. And what happened is Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, and then the messenger came back to Paul, the one who had had delivered that letter, came back and talked to Paul. And yes, less than a year after he wrote 1 Thessalonians, Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians. Probably just a few months after the first letter, he wrote the second letter. And much of the language is the same, the topics are mostly the same, and what we're going to see is that he was really reiterating and expanding some of the things that he had already said. We will know, as we get into this letter over the next few weeks, that the persecution that they had been experiencing had gotten worse. We know that one of the things that happened is that actually a false teacher or some false teachers had come in and had a forged letter, a letter that said it was from the Apostle Paul, but it was really from somebody else, and it had bad teaching related to the end times, and they were passing that letter off. And so there was confusion in the church, and Paul was going to seek to kind of take care of some of that confusion, clear up some of that confusion. So as we get into 2 Thessalonians, again, the big idea of this whole series is how do we live faithfully for the Lord in light of His return? And as we get into 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 this morning, I want to do just a, a real quick little mental exercise for you. I want you to think about your home. I want you to think about the things that you put on display in your home. Some of you have collections that you put on display. Many of you have uh, family members, right? You have pictures of your family, and you love to put those on display and put them up and love people to come in and to see those pictures. As your kids get older, you keep the pictures of when they were younger, right? Remember when they were so cute? Oh, yeah. They're so adorable now, but look how cute they were then. Some of you have, like, you know, these animal heads with horns coming off of them on display in your home. That's all right. That's a good thing. We put things on display because we want people to see them and get excited about them. I heard a really cool story. Actually, uh, Jim Greenfield, who goes to church, comes to the first service here. He's got a friend named Harvey. Harvey's a, almost 101 years old. He's a World War II veteran. Veterans Day. And Harvey just received, a couple weeks ago, he received his Purple Heart from World War II. Do you think that's something that Harvey is excited to put on display? Check this out. World War II. Right? Harvey was actually honored at the Kraken game last night. He was the guest of honor at the Kraken game and was there in his regalia, and it was a, apparently it was a pretty cool uh, opportunity. 
We know what it's like to put things on display, to show things off, because we want people to see that thing and praise that thing. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, who I know you're all familiar with that, right? The very first question that it asks, it says, what is the chief end of man? And we answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I said this in the first service. I said, you guys nailed that and you're not even Presbyterian, right? Most of you. Just throw that out there. To glorify God. To glorify God means to put God on display. To show God off. To bring God honor and glory. And Westminster Confession, in the words of Scripture, says that's the most important thing in your entire life. The chief end of man. So it's interesting as the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to this church... And he's talking about, I know you're excited about the Lord's return. I know you're excited about the end times, but here's how you live faithfully for the Lord right now in the meantime. And Paul's going to show us today in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 just exactly how we can put God on display, how we can show God off in our lives and we can bring God honor and glory because that's the most important thing that we can do as Christians. And so as we go through chapter 1, we'll see three ways that we can put God on display, or three ways that God is displayed in our lives. And we'll jump right in, first, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And what we'll see in verses 1 through 4 is that God's grace is displayed in our growth. God's grace is displayed in our growth. He says this in verse 1, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now those two verses are nearly identical to how he started 1 Thessalonians. We already talked about those, so we're going to jump right into verse 3. He says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you. Meaning they are under obligation. Paul and these other men who are spiritual leaders were under obligation to give thanks for this Thessalonian church. As is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith and all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. I want to unpack a couple of pieces related to God's grace and our growth in these two verses. He says, We ought to give thanks. As is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. Growing abundantly, the word picture in the word that Paul is using there, it means that it is flourishing like a tree. And right now in the Pacific Northwest, after the windstorms of Friday, Thursday and Friday, there are no leaves left on any trees. But earlier in the week, you guys, I was up in the hills over here. It was beautiful. Just orange and yellow all over the place. We moved into our neighborhood 10 years ago, and it was a new development. And Pierce County says, you've got to plant so many trees in your development. And so they planted trees down everybody's, uh, beside everyone's driveway, down the, down the main road. And those trees were tiny. But 10 years later, you drive into our neighborhood, and last week, before the winds came, just orange and yellow, and it looks like they're on fire, and it's beautiful, and these trees are flourishing. That's the word picture that Paul uses when he talks about these people's faith. In addition to that, he says this about their love. It says, the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. And interestingly there, that word increasing is another word picture. And the word picture would be of a river overflowing its banks. 
and like flood water spreading out all over the place. And he says, your faith is flourishing like a tree. Your walk with the Lord is flourishing. And that's being shown in the fact that your love for each other is actually spreading all over the place. And it sounds a lot like what he said in 1 Thessalonians. You remember 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and I won't read it. But he said almost the same thing to them. But here's what I love about that. Is that there's been this period of time of months or upwards of a year between when he first wrote and he said, you're growing and you're doing a great job and you're loving each other. And now a year later he comes back and he's able to write to the same people and says, your, your love is growing. Your faith is flourishing. And it makes me ask this question of myself. Over the last year, how have I grown? Over the course of the last 8, 9, 12 months, how has my walk with the Lord grown? You guys know that it's easy for pastors to get into spiritual ruts just like anybody else. I was talking with some men that I meet with this past week, and I said, we're reading a book. It's called Dangerous Calling. It's, a, it's for pastors. And it's talking about the importance of your, your public ministry to come out of your personal devotional life. And we're talking about the danger that it can be that this just becomes a job. That like you go to work on Monday morning and do what you do, that I can come in on Monday morning and just open up my Bible and my commentaries and it can become a job. And the challenge that I read this week that was a challenge to me was that I should, preaching for me should be worshiping my way through this sermon. I should be just worshiping my way through this sermon, right? And it's a challenge to me to say, how is my faith continuing to grow? And how is my love continuing to grow? Paul, was, Paul said, we are obliged to give thanks to God for this church because over the course of these, this last year, the course of these last months, this church and these people have been growing. And I want in verse 4 to draw your attention. If, if their faith was a flourishing tree, verse 4 will tell us something about the soil in which that tree was planted. Look at it, verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your what? In all your persecutions, in the afflictions that you are enduring. You see, not always, but often the roots of faith grow strongest in the soil of persecution. The roots of faith should grow stronger in the soil of persecution. We know in Jesus' words in that parable, in the parable of the soils, that that doesn't always hold true. That often, persecution destroys false faith. But true faith should be strengthened. Interesting here that he doesn't say that they are thankful and they boast for their steadfastness and their faith in all of your prosperity. Right? One of the things that as Christians that we have to do is we have to develop a proper theology of suffering. And there's some ways that people miss this. There's some ways that Christians get this wrong and that Christian teachers teach this the wrong way. But we want to have a, a good theology of suffering so that when we go through afflictions, when we go through persecutions, we know what to do with them. We know how to respond to them. So here's a couple things that help us as we see these people their faith growing through afflictions. The first thing I would say is this. In places like 1 Thessalonians, in places like 1 Peter, when we hear about Christians suffering affliction and persecution, it's important that we understand that he's talking about affliction and persecution that's specifically related to your Christian faith. 
People go through a lot of trials, a lot of adversities, a lot of hard times. Uh, James chapter 1 says, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds, okay? This would be things like uh, sickness, relationship issues. This would be things like financial problems. There's a lot of various trials that Christians can go through that are significant trials. That's not what he's talking about in places like 1 Thessalonians. What he's talking about is this. He's saying that, that these people, when they became Christians, when they professed the name of Jesus, when they switched their allegiance to Team Jesus, that there was some adversity that would come. In their culture, they could be ostracized by family and by friends. They weren't following the social norms of the day. They weren't following the uh, political norms of the day. They weren't worshiping the emperor the way that everyone else was. And so there was affliction and persecution specifically related to them calling themselves Christians. And I, I use this illustration. We laugh at it, but I think it fits. This is like putting on the Seahawks jersey and going down to San Francisco and going into Levi Stadium, Right? And going into the San Francisco 49ers Stadium in Santa Clara, wherever it is, and wearing your Seahawks jersey loud and proud. Now, you can go up there to whatever they call it now. What is it called now? CenturyLink, the Quest, the Lumen. Lumen. You can go to that place, right, and wear your Seahawks jersey, and it's like, yeah, baby, you're on our team. Woo! Hugs, high fives, let's go. I'll buy you a $17 beer. It's going to be great. But if you go down there and you have your Seahawks jersey on, persecution, affliction, if the Raiders were still in L.A., it'd be even worse, right? You couldn't even go down there and come out with your life if you wore a Seahawks jersey. That's what we're talking about. When we leave church, we leave our Christian comfort zone, and we go out to work, we go out to our hobbies, we go out to our kids' events and things like that, and we put on Team Jesus, right? There's going to be people that are going to say, you know what? You're bigoted. You're intolerant. You're homophobic. You're closed-minded. Don't come to my party. You don't get to come to our event. You're canceled. You're uninvited. You're unfriended. I'm not subscribing, right? That's affliction and persecution. What happens is we either, we, we think one of two things, right? Some theologians and, and Christians teach that the theology of suffering is that Anytime I experience anything bad in my life, it's a result of me not having enough faith or I'm being punished for something that is explicitly unbiblical. I'll say that again, and I'll give you examples. If someone tells you that any, any trial, hardship, suffering, bad time that's coming in your life is God pruning, reproving you, that it's a result of sin in your life, and just bunches that all together... There's a man named Joseph in the book of Genesis. You remember him? Genesis 37 and following. He suffered a lot of persecution, and at the end of all of it, he said, what man intended for evil, God intended for good. There's a whole book of the Bible. It's called the book of Job. Some of you are like, I thought that meant job. No, it's Job, right? Yeah. And last week, I was yelling about people getting jobs. That's not, a, that's not the book, right? Job is a book about suffering. And Job's friends get in trouble because they say, well, you must be a bad guy if you're suffering. Okay? So that's a poor theology of suffering. There can be things that come into our lives that God is using to strengthen us. There can be things that God is using in for what Hebrews calls discipline, that the Lord disciplines those he loves. But that's not the totality of suffering. The other side of the suffering coin is that anything that happens to my, in my life by way of, of bad, any kind of suffering, 
is the kind of suffering that he's talking about right here. And I think that as we live in a more and more and more post-Christian world, it is really important for us to be able to say and to understand that that's not all that suffering is. That as more and more and more, when you go out into your world and you claim the name of Jesus, more and more, that's not an okay thing. Right? We used to live in a culture that, that was positive, this, this culture of Christendom. Just generally saying, I go to church, was a positive thing. I ran into it this week. I said something along the lines just out and doing what I was doing, something about being a pastor, and I totally got the cold shoulder from someone. I had been talking to him, and I said something about being a pastor, and I totally got the cold shoulder. Before, being a pastor was like, oh, that's really good work, right? And by that, they meant, man, I'm glad I don't have to do that. But it was like, thumbs up. Now, generally speaking, if they don't share the same worldview as you, it's a thumbs down kind of thing. In other words, in Christendom, in a Christian culture, most people were wearing the Jesus jersey. Now, when you go into the world in most places, that's the jersey for the other team. And it's going to cause persecution. It's going to cause affliction. And I think it's important for us to get that right. Because he says here that persecution and afflictions is what is uh, growing their faith. So as we develop a theology of suffering, understand that oftentimes that suffering, that persecution, that affliction is what God is using to grow us. And God's grace is displayed as we grow through those things. And as, as I walk through what God's called me to walk through, as I put on the jersey and go out and live in the world, and I continue to grow and I continue to let the soil of persecution, affliction, help my faith to flourish. And as we do that collectively, God's grace is displayed. We often apply these things to our lives individually, right? We often apply the truths of Scripture to our lives as individuals, but all of these letters in the New Testament were written collectively to churches. One of the reasons that God is blessing this church is because we're walking through persecution in faithfulness. I believe that one of the reasons that the church is growing is that because not just in this venue, but in all the venues that we possibly can, is that we're trying to remain faithful to God's word and grow related to God's word, and that God's grace is on display in our community. I didn't share this in the first service, but it was a really cool thing. Somebody, and I don't want to share too many specifics, but somebody showed me something uh, from a social media site where our church was actually mentioned. People we don't even know, but the church was mentioned in a real positive light on social media by one person trying to counsel another person. Like, that's the kind of stuff that we want to be known for, is that we're remaining faithful to God's word and that God's grace is on display in this church, in our, not numerical growth, but in our spiritual growth. Amen? So God's grace is displayed in our growth. Number two, we're going to see that God's justice is displayed in his judgment. And I'm going to read all these verses, and then we're going to unpack it. We're going to spend a few minutes here because it's so important. God's justice is displayed in his judgment. Verse 5, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty, mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 
They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled at among all who believe, because our testimony to you was believed. Now there's a lot in there. And as an overview, I would say Paul just got real. He's like, hey, you guys are doing a great job. And the next thing you know, he's like fire and vengeance and justice. And I want us to unpack this, and there's a couple reasons. And I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to give you several things about the just judgment of God. I'll put them on the screen. You'll be able to see them. I'll point them out from the text. But before I do that, a couple introductory comments related to this idea of justice and judgment. The Apostle Paul wrote that in here. He wrote that to this church for a specific purpose. It was intended to provide them with encouragement. It was intended to provide them with encouragement by putting their affliction into perspective. It wasn't meant to fuel this fire of like end times fury, right? Or this end times fear. He didn't write all this stuff so that somebody could write a bunch of novels and make a ton of money, so that Winchester could sell a bunch more ammo, right? He wrote this to give them encouragement by putting their persecution into perspective. And so all of this talk about God's just judgment is actually meant to be an encouragement to Christians. And I also want to say this, that the justice and judgment of God is a major area of contention with people who don't have a Christian worldview. With the secular world, most people who who have a problem with God will say something related to a problem with God being a just God. Or God judging people. And if you're here today and that's you, I want to say welcome, that your questions are welcome. If you'd like to talk with me later, I'd love to talk through this. I don't want to be angry or mad or frustrated or upset. I I want to welcome those questions because sometimes when you read the Old Testament and you see the judgment of God, when you read the New Testament, especially the book of Revelation, and you see the the judgment of God, I mean, that that can cause some serious questions about the goodness of God right? And so it's a perfectly normal question for someone to ask to say, how can God be both good and judge people in the way that he does? Like, that's a normal question. If that's your question, that question is welcome, because I think there are really good answers to it. And so with the world, people who are not Christians, people with a secular worldview, that's a a difficult question, and we can address that. But here's my bigger concern. My bigger concern is what I'm going to call the soft American church and their unwillingness to talk about the justice of God. Because it's not a popular doctrine to talk about. But it is an absolutely necessary doctrine to talk about. To talk about God's justice and God's judgment is one of the most loving things that I can do here. And I'll tell you why. I'm reading a, a book. This is my weekend reading. It a view into me and a way to pray for my family. Is my weekend reading starting on Friday was called The Righteous Judgment of God. And I just really felt uh, encouraged by it. But one of the things that he talks about in the introduction to that is he talks about how this is something that churches have strayed far from. That we want to talk about the love of God and we want to paint the picture of God as loving and, and God loves everyone and God accepts everyone and God affirms everyone and God would never judge anyone. And by doing that, we are painting a very anemic picture of God. And it's an unbiblical picture of God. And it's a very unloving picture of God, in fact. 
one of the fundamental things we have to understand is that the justice and the judgment of God are grounded in the goodness and the love of God. Okay? So, so you can't have you, you just you can't have a God who is good and a God who is loving, like really truly good and really truly loving, without having a God who is a just judge. And we can spend a lot of time unpacking that. I won't do all that. But what we need to know and what we need to see is that the justice and the judgment of God is essential for us in understanding the true character of God. What we're seeing today in soft churches is kind of like the grandfather Gandalf God, right? I just came up with that just now. But you've got this God who's up there, and he would never be mean to anyone, and he would never do anything wrong to everyone. He's just kind of up there stroking his big white beard, trying to help everybody to get along and do everything nice to each other. He kind of loves everyone the same way and expresses that love the same way in just this soft kindness, right? And you have Jesus, who's a good moral teacher, and he's kind, and he's humble, and he was poor, which is good, because I'm poor, and I can relate to Jesus, right? And you have this very anemic picture of God. You have this very anemic picture of Jesus, because people don't want to think about and talk about the just judgment of God. What I want you to see is that the just judgment of God is not angry, mean God spitting fire for no reason, but that God's justice and his judgment is really part of the love of God. The other thing I'll say about that is this, is that I can't give you everything about the justice of God and the judgment of God here today. So in the sermon supplement, it's available on the back table, it's available through the QR codes there. In this week's sermon supplement, I listed about five different resources. There's some scripture verses, there's a couple of blogs that will help you out, there's a three-part sermon series, and then that book that I talked about, um, is there if you want to take, really take a deeper dive into this topic. But I would encourage you to study this, church, because this is not something that people are talking about. And our understanding of God has become anemic because we haven't seen this and understood it enough. So with that said, I want to give you five things from this text that we learn about God's just judgment. The first is the evidence. In verse 5, he says this about the evidence of God's just judgment. He says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. The word this, and some of your translations will say, this is how we know that God's judgment is just. At the beginning of verse 5, I think he's referring us back to verse 4, where he talks about their steadfastness and faith in all of their persecutions and afflictions. Here's what I, how I understand verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. That the righteous judgment of God, that our steadfastness, our faithfulness in the midst of that persecution, in the midst of that affliction, that our steadfastness and our faithfulness is actually an element of how we know and how we can prove that God is just. In other words, when you are persecuted for wearing the Team Jesus jersey, when you are afflicted for wearing the Team Jesus jersey, and you don't pull that jersey off and throw it away, you are proving the justice and the judgment of God. That the way that we live our everyday lives in the world in faithfulness to God is actually part of the way that, that God will point to that as evidence of His just judgment in the future. And he talks about it like this, the next part of verse 5. It says that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. 
First Peter chapter 1 and 1 Peter chapter 4 talk about this beautifully, that our affliction tests and reveals our character, right? But again, as I said, that, that the tree of flourishing, the flourishing faith should be planted in the soil of persecution. But instead, oftentimes what happens is, as in Jesus' parable, the weeds come and choke out that false faith. But as we walk through those difficult times and those afflictions, one of the things that it does is it proves our character. And the way that Paul says it here is that it shows that we can be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Verse 6, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. You see that? God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. You can read through the Psalms and see places where the Psalm writers, especially David, are crying out to God, God, why does it seem that, that evil is winning? Give me justification. Vindicate me, God. And in God's timing, I want you to see this as encouragement. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Some of you, that's your word today from the Lord. You've been suffering affliction, specifically for being a Christian. You've been ostracized. Maybe you've been afraid to live for the Lord in your workplace because you can see what it does to other people. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. That's why we can quote verses like Romans chapter 12, verse, I think verse 9. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, declares the Lord. Right? That's not something that you just quote when your kids are fighting with each other. That's actually a verse that is meaningful. But the reason that it's meaningful is because we can point to something like this verse. The reason that I can trust God's faithfulness in my affliction is because I know that his, of his just character. God considers it just to repay, to, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, in verse 7, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us. That's probably a word that many of us need to hear. There will be a day when God grants relief. It may not be today, it may not be tomorrow, it may not be next week, right? But some of us need to circle that word relief, because we need some relief. I mean, I'm in it all the time, the pressure is there, I feel it, it's hard, it's heavy, right? I want to put on the jersey, but then I want to put a coat over it, right? I can feel it. I just want to assure you, as this verse assures you, this is a church in the first century that was going through intense persecution, specifically because they said, hey, we're on Team Jesus. The church in the 21st century is going to continue to go through more intense persecution as they say, hey, we're on Team Jesus, Hey, we're going to stand for what God's Word stands for. We're going to stand against what God's Word stands against. We're going to be loud in a culture where people want to shut us up. We're going to feel more pressure. And we're going to have to keep coming back to that verse, that He will grant relief to those who are afflicted as well. There will be a day of relief. He then talks about the execution of, of God's just judgment. Look at the rest of verse 7. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance. Like some of the coolest things that happen on YouTube have to do with fire. 
I don't know if you've spent much time, but look up fire on YouTube. There's some pretty cool stuff that happens related to fire on YouTube. In the Bible, there's some pretty cool stuff that happens related to God and fire. Revelation, I think it's chapter 19, is one of my favorites, right? Here comes Jesus. It's the end of time. He's got the armies of heaven arrayed behind him. And he shows up, and he's on a white horse, and he's got a white robe, and he's got, a, he's got swords coming out of his mouth, right? And there's fire involved. He's got a tattoo. You can apply that as you wish. But it's pretty impressive. And he comes, and he like lays waste to the armies of the enemy. All of those things. You read the book of Ezekiel, man, Ezekiel's got some crazy stuff related to fire. Read Ezekiel chapter 1. It starts out with, I saw visions of God. Then it's the craziest sci-fi movie you've ever watched. And then it says, and then I fell face down. And there's all kinds of fire. Because what he's doing is he is depicting some of the awesomeness of God. And we use awesome for like, man, those nacho fries at Taco Bell are pretty awesome, right? And one of my friends is like, I will only use the word awesome in, related to, in relation to God. When you see depictions like this of Jesus and his second coming, and there's fire and there's fury, it's, it's meant to show a picture of awe. And that's supposed to do two things. For those of us who are on Team Jesus, we're supposed to be awe-inspired, right? Woo! That's my team. I got his jersey. See? Right? But if you're not on Team Jesus, you're supposed to be awe-filled. It's just going to be awe-full for you, right? And that's what he's doing as he talks about it. He's saying this is how his judgment is going to be executed. By the way, most people say this is, this is the Apostle Paul's most graphic and explicit uh, picture of the second coming of Christ, right? I mean, John got a full view in Revelation. But for the Apostle Paul, this is as strong and as graphic as he gets talking about the second coming of Christ. And it says he is going to be revealed from heaven. Now, here's an interesting change. Back in 1 Thessalonians, I pointed out several times that this word was used for the coming of the Lord called the parousia. And it was the idea of like an official, somebody important was coming to your city. And that was good news. Here he uses the word apocalypsis. Does that sound familiar? Those of you who like apocalyptic movies, right? End time stuff. Apocalypsis means an unveiling. It means that the veil is going to be removed and we're going to see God the Son in all of his awesomeness. And when he comes, it's going to look a lot different than it did when he came the first time. Amen? He's going to be coming in flaming fire to inflict vengeance. When he talks about these ideas... He says, the Lord is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, and he's inflicting vengeance. One of the things we understand is that when he talks about vengeance, he's not talking about an outburst of unrighteous anger. He's not talking about, like, God just got really TO'd, and he just, like, blew off some steam. But he's talking about the righteous execution of his judgment, that there is one who has every right to offer retributive justice, to offer true righteous judgment and vengeance, and that is God and God alone. If you understand the holiness of God and the sinfulness of humanity, you understand God's right of vengeance. And that's what he says there. There's the execution of God's judgment. He also talks about the recipients of God's judgment. He says it's going to be on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
the most loving thing that a pastor or a friend or anyone else can do for someone who doesn't know Jesus is share the gospel. Romans chapter 1 says it kind of like this, and Romans is a great book for the gospel. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Romans says that all of us, by nature and by choice, are sinners. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that the wages of the payment for that sin is death, physical and spiritual death. But the same verse says that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That there is separation from God and that, that we all live under the wrath of God. We all deserve to be the recipients of God's righteous judgment. See, here's a major turning point between secular understanding and what Christians believe and understand is that we are all under God's wrath. And there's this word, it's called propitiation, this word in the New Testament. Some Bibles don't even translate it that way, but what it means is it means to appease the wrath of a God. And it says that Jesus offered some translations called a sacrifice of atonement, but propitiation specifically meant that God paid the price, or that Jesus paid the price not only for our sins to be forgiven, but to satisfy the wrath of God. And so the gospel is that I don't try to earn it on my own, but I trust in Jesus. If you trust in Jesus as your Savior, you're not a recipient of God's just judgment. If you don't accept Christ as your Savior, if you don't become a Christian, this is explicitly what the Scripture says. And this is explicitly a warning toward God's judgment. And what that means is that then there are consequences of that judgment, verse 9. It says, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. This is not teaching annihilationism, that you're just going to die and that's going to be it, because it's eternal. Some of the other ways that Scripture talks about these consequences of God's judgment are with these terms, unquenchable fire, fiery furnace, blackest darkness, fiery lake of burning sulfur. And we don't believe that those are just metaphors. Those aren't just word pictures for some, like, you know, subconscious existence away from God. That eternity is real, and it's forever, and it's hot, and it's painful, and it's punishment for those who aren't Christians. Those are the consequences of God's just judgment. But here's the good news in verse 10, that there are those who are beneficiaries of God's just judgment. Look at verse 10. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled at among all who have believed because of our testimony to you was believed. You think you're going to marvel when he returns? You think you're going to be kind of like, that's pretty awesome. I mean, nacho fries are cool, but that's awesome, right? When Jesus came in his first advent, he came as a lamb. When he comes in his second advent, he's coming as a lion. When Jesus came in his first advent, he came humble. In the second advent, he's going to come powerfully. There's going to be a stark difference between the servant and the warrior king. And any ideology that just shows this one part of God and this one part of Jesus that makes us all comfortable doesn't give us the full picture. And it doesn't give me very much to live for or very much to get excited about. If God is just the great Gandalf in the sky, and Jesus is just a humble peasant teacher, that's not much for me to worship. But if God really is the just judge, 
and all of his judgment comes out of his love, that's something that I can get excited about and get behind and worship. Amen? Especially if I know I'm going to be one of the beneficiaries and not one of the recipients. That's the encouragement. If you're here today and you're like, hey, I don't know Jesus as my Savior, you're a recipient. If you're here today and you know Christ is your Savior, you're a beneficiary. Each of us will be one or the other. There's no third category. But I can get excited about being under the grace of God. I can get excited about showing off the justice of God through His judgment. And finally, and I know because the first service looked at me the same way, it's 14 after, and i got a whole point left to go. But this is a quick one. Don't worry, it's only two verses. I did it on the first service. I can do it now. God's power is then displayed in our perseverance. Look at verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy or count you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. And I want you to underline his power, right? Paul's saying, we're praying for you, that you will be encouraged, that you will have resolve. And and the formula for perseverance is this, our work by God's power. He talks about their resolve here. He talks about their works of faith here. But he wraps it all up in saying that God is the one that's going to bring that to fruition. By his power. Verse 12. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be what? Glorified in you and you in him. According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Glorified, church. Put on display that God will be glorified in us. As we grow, as we give evidence to the the just judgment of God, as we persevere, we put God on display. We take him, we we set him up. Just like Harvey with his World War II purple heart. That's something to be proud of. So the question this morning as we close is simple, right? How am I putting God on display? Am I spending more time putting myself on display? Am I spending more time putting other things on display? Or am I really excited about putting God on display? Because that's something to live for in the meantime. Amen? Amen. Stand with me this morning. Let's thank God for it all. By the way, did you see that? I got it done. This watch says 1215, so. God, we love opening your word. We love the honesty, sometimes the brutal honesty of your word. God, we love how you've laid it out for us right here. Thank you for the opportunities that we have to open your word and see your truth. God, help us to have a full-orbed understanding of who you are, of of your character. Help us, just protect us from some of these emaciated views that are running around of who you are and your character and who Jesus is and what he's all about. God, help us to understand your love and your mercy and your grace and your kindness in light of your justice and your judgment and your power and your holiness. God, I pray that that would encourage those of us who are Christians, that today that people would walk out being encouraged because of the God that we love and we serve. And God, that someone either is here today or watching online or will watch later, God, that that person would hear the warning. Not my warning, that they would hear your warning and you would draw them to yourself that they would not be recipients of your just judgment. God, that they would give their lives to Jesus and trust Him for their salvation. We praise you this morning. We thank you. God, I pray that you would carry us out of here encouraged and, and stronger in our faith. In Jesus' name, 
Amen.